I'm reading from the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, beginning at the first verse. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. During any Christmas season, there are always reasons to feel sad, lonely, stressed, and depressed. For a long time, we have been talking about how many people experience Christmas as the most depressing season of the year. But 2020 has provided many new reasons for us to enter this season with some sense of gloom and doom hanging over us. Many people have died as a result of the pandemic. Many people are sick. And we look forward to 2021 with a great deal of trepidation. So it is only natural that we would look to the Hallmark Channel for comfort during these troubling times. The Hallmark Channel made no less than 40 Christmas movies this year to add to their long list that they have been making for nearly 20 years. Last year, 70 million people tuned into the Hallmark Channel to watch these holiday films, and no, I was not one of them. As you know, I watch It's a Wonderful Life and The Bishop's Wife, and that's about it. This year, the Hallmark Channel is offering movies such as A Christmas Duet, Merry and Bright, Check In to Christmas, Once Upon a Christmas Miracle, Reunited at Christmas, Pride, Prejudice, and Mistletoe, Christmas Scavenger Hunt, and Picture a Perfect Christmas, just to name a few. One of the plots sort of sums up the typical Hallmark Christmas movie. Told she would have less than a few months to live without a new liver, Heather's time was running out when a kind stranger heard of her plight and discovered he was a perfect match. The two met, and before long, a friendship developed into a romance. That is a typical Hallmark movie plot. One woman said that during this time of year, she lives in Hallmark land, and she has been known to watch 35 of these Hallmark movies each year. And we might wonder why so many people watch these films, almost all of them exactly alike. As one writer has put it, the Hallmark formula is simple. Give the audience what it wants, including familiar plots stuffed with unlikely romances, holiday homecomings, charmingly snow-covered hamlets, and life-affirming tales of redemption. And by the end of two hours, good triumphs over evil, the requisite love connections are made, Scrooge-like tendencies are squelched, Christmas is saved from ruin, and everything is tied up in a big, bright, beautiful bow. That is the Hallmark version of Christmas. And I think deep down inside, 
We all want a Christmas like that. And maybe we tune in to Hallmark Land because that is the only place where we think those Christmas dreams come true, neatly tied up in that big, bright, beautiful bow. Oddly enough, many Christians have made the story of the birth of Jesus into a Hallmark story. And that is not a recent event. Making the story of the birth of Jesus into a Hallmark film started with legends that were told about the birth of Jesus and the glamorization of the birth of Jesus was actually aided and abetted by many of the early church fathers. In its zeal to emphasize the miraculous nature of the coming of Christ, the early church sadly created a world of pure fantasy. And over the centuries, we have come to look at the birth of Jesus as it appears on a Hallmark Christmas card. A pristine stable, calm cattle, wise men, shepherds, a star overhead, Mary in immaculate clothing, perfectly at peace, serene with a holy gleam on her face right after childbirth, no less, and all the members of the Holy Family with halos around their heads. In a certain sense, I realize that these depictions are symbolic of some truths, but we need to realize that the birth of Jesus did not really occur in this wise. The Christmas story was not a Hallmark movie. The Christmas story is described in our text. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. The Christmas story is about a great red dragon who wants to eat the child as soon as it's born. That seems something more like a grim fairy tale than a Hallmark movie. The Christmas story is one that is filled with fear, sorrow, and pain. And we should be glad that it is, because that is real life. So let us look at the real Christmas story. An engaged young woman, Mary, turns up pregnant. Her betrothed husband is naturally outraged. How could she have been unfaithful to him? But he's a righteous man and he decides that he will divorce her privately rather than expose her to public shame. And he would have gone through with it if an angel had not appeared to him in a dream and told Joseph that the child in Mary's womb was conceived of the Holy Ghost. Nevertheless, a shadow hangs over Mary, Joseph, and the child to be born from the beginning. The Jews seem to be aware of the rumors when they insult Jesus later in his life by saying, we are not born of fornication, implying perhaps that Jesus was. So Mary is pregnant, and as the time draws near, suddenly they have to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem to register for taxes. And we're told that Mary is great with child, meaning that she is in the last stages of her pregnancy. We aren't told exactly how Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, whether it was by donkey, camel, or wagon, or if they simply walked. If they walked, it would have taken them four or five days. Can you imagine how exhausted Mary must have been, the pain and the discomfort? And it is here where the early church begins to interject myths and legends that turn ancient Judea into Hallmark land. 
Very early on, many of the early church fathers began to promote the idea that Mary was sinless. It is strange how one error leads to so many others. Combine the idea of Mary being sinless with the belief that she was a virgin throughout her life, even after Jesus was born, and you open the door to countless unscriptural teachings. But there arose this legend that since Mary was sinless, she was free from labor pains. After all, labor pains, pain during childbirth, was part of the curse placed on the woman after she sinned against God. God said, you remember, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So the argument goes that since Mary was sinless, she would not experience the pains of a childbirth, because pain in childbirth is the fruit of sin. One of the great early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, wrote, Of him then his mother's burden was light, the birth immaculate, the delivery without pain, the nativity without defilement, neither beginning from want and desire, nor brought to pass with sorrow. For as she who by her guilt engrafted death into our nature was condemned to bring forth in trouble, it was meet that she who brought life into the world should accomplish her delivery with joy. Now Gregory was a great man in many ways, but he was not infallible, and in this sense, he was very wrong. Words like these come very close to striking at the very heart of the truth of the Incarnation. Let me take Gregory's words and substitute what he should have said. Because Mary was bearing the suffering servant, she was a partaker of his sufferings. Her burden was heavy. The birth was like any other human birth. The delivery was with great pain. Since she was fully human and her child was fully human, she endured the pains of childbirth, but rejoiced after his birth that she held in her arms the son of the highest. Needless to say, there is nothing in Scripture that even remotely suggests that Mary was sinless. To get that idea, you have to go to myth, legend, fable, and tradition. Mary was a human being just like the rest of us, and she experienced pain and sorrow like the rest of us, even the pain and sorrow experienced during childbirth. She may have experienced morning sickness like many women do. When they started on their journey to Bethlehem and she was great with child, no doubt she experienced all the physical pain that any woman would experience in the last stages of pregnancy, compounded by a long, difficult journey. Then when they get to Bethlehem, the problems grow worse. They can find no room in the inn. The word inn could mean a guest room. They couldn't stay in the guest room, so they had to sleep on the first floor of the house, which is where a family would have kept its animals, thus the presence of the manger. So Jesus is born and placed in a manger. And here, once again, to protect the idea that Mary was sinless and ever virgin, all kinds of myths are invented. There were some early church fathers who taught that Jesus didn't even come through the birth canal. Some taught that he was in the womb and that he suddenly just materialized outside the womb. Some theologians taught that Jesus passed through the womb the way light passes through a window. 
That way Mary would have had no pain and her virginity would have remained intact, an idea that's not necessary even if you did believe in her perpetual virginity. One of the first works that contained this idea was in the Proto-Evangelium of James, sometimes called the Gospel of James. In that story, Joseph left Mary to go find a midwife to deliver the child. And when he and the midwife got back, there was this bright light, and then suddenly there was Jesus being held by Mary. No pain, very quick, very simple. And these stories get more elaborate over time, and they're so unnecessary. I object to these stories not only because they have no basis in Scripture, but also because they are dangerous. These stories have a tendency to rob both Mary and Jesus of their humanity. Around 1850, the pre-Raphaelite artist John Everett Millay painted a work called Christ in the House of His Parents. It shows Jesus as a little boy, and Joseph is performing his work as a carpenter. It was an extremely controversial painting. Why? It was controversial because it made the Holy Family look so ordinary, so human. That was not the way artists depicted the Holy Family. No, the world was used to seeing the Holy Family in these idealized paintings and settings. Charles Dickens hated the painting because he said Malay had made Mary so hideous in her ugliness that she would stand out from the rest of the company as a monster in the vilest cabaret in France or the lowest gin shop in England. One critic said that it was painful to see the youthful savior depicted as a red-headed Jew boy. Dickens said that Malay's Jesus looked like a wry-necked, blubbering, red-headed boy in a bedgown who appears to have received a poke playing in an adjacent gutter. And to top it off, Jesus and Mary are standing on a dirt floor in the midst of wood shavings. Unthinkable. What great sin had Malay committed that he should have received such criticism? Well, he dared to depict the Holy Family as what they were. Jewish peasants. Actual human beings. But that is what they were. Mary was a real woman who gave birth to a real human child. We have no reason to believe that the birth of Jesus happened in any way other than the birth of any other child. At least, Franco Zeffirelli was closer to reality in the movie Jesus of Nazareth when he shows Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem with Mary sitting down in great discomfort and Joseph has so much difficulty getting her to her feet again. And then as Mary is giving birth, she groans and shrieks, clutching the blanket in great pain. Are we really supposed to believe that Mary was spared all of that? That she just danced around gracefully, no problem, and suddenly, surprise, Jesus just materializes. No, Mary experienced all the pain and agony of childbirth. As a matter of fact, I would be much more inclined to believe that she may have experienced the greatest agony ever endured by a woman when she gave birth to Jesus. The woman clothed with the sun in Revelation 12 cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. As I've said, the woman clothed with the sun represents the church. The church cried, travailed in birth, pained to be delivered for thousands of years. Mary was part of that church. It would be a strange thing if Mary, who gave birth to this child, 
would be spared all pain of childbirth. It would rather shatter the symbolism, I think. Also, it would be a strange thing if Mary was spared sorrow and pain while her son would be known as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was fully human and is fully human. He knew pain and sorrow. Make no mistake about it. Both Jesus and Mary were fully human and they both experienced what we might call today the trauma of birth. Birth is a traumatic experience for both mother and child. Being a man, I have no right to speak on how painful and traumatic it is, but to quote another great theologian, Carol Burnett, she said, if you want to know what labor pains are like, grab your bottom lip and pull it over your head. So many studies are being done at the present time to show that the trauma of childbirth can be very excruciating for women, and many women have something like post-traumatic stress disorder. But the church has always known how dangerous and frightening giving birth can be. Our prayer book has the order of service for the thanksgiving of women after childbirth, and that service begins with the priest saying to the woman, For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God of His goodness to give you safe deliverance and to preserve you in the great danger of childbirth, you shall therefore give hearty thanks unto God. And then the prayer that follows, O Almighty God, we give Thee humble thanks for that Thou hast been graciously pleased to preserve through the great pain and peril of childbirth this woman, thy servant, who desireth now to offer her praises and thanksgiving unto thee. Grant, we beseech thee, most merciful Father, that she, through thy help, may faithfully live according to thy will in this life and also may be a partaker of everlasting glory in the life to come. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Of course, childbirth was much more dangerous in the 16th century, but it is still dangerous. That is why giving birth is such a sign of love, a love that a woman has for her child, that she would go through the dangers of pregnancy and childbirth to give birth to her child. Do you really think Mary was spared that danger? Don't you know that she could look at her son as any other mother looks at her child and say, I entered the jaws of death so that you could have life? No, the birth of Jesus was like any other birth, filled with all the pain and danger that attends any other birth. But childbirth is not only traumatic for the mother, but also for the child. As we often say, the child is so safe, sound, and comfortable in the womb of its mother, and then it is suddenly thrust into this cold and brutal world that is filled with sorrow and pain, a world where we will have to struggle for survival all our days. In 1924, one of Sigmund Freud's closest colleagues, Otto Rank, wrote a book entitled The Trauma of Birth. Of course, many of Freud and Rank's psychoanalytic theories have been dashed over the years, but there's still a great deal being written about the trauma of birth. As one modern psychologist has put it, Otto Rank wrote that all human beings suffer trauma by virtue of being born and of the inevitable, violent, physical, and psychic separation we suffer at birth from our mother. Rock believed that the physical event of birth, where the infant moves from a state of perfect harmony and union with the mother into a painful state of separation, 
resulting from the traumatic and violent circumstances of birth constitutes the earliest anxiety that a human being experiences. Well, I don't buy all of Ronk's ideas, but it is true that when we are born, we are born into a world of conflict and suffering. I'm reminded of Jim Morrison's Riders on the Storm. Into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown, like a dog without a bone, an actor out alone. There, I've gone from St. John to Gregory of Nyssa to Otto Ronk to Jim Morrison and the doors in one fell swoop. But the point I'm trying to make is that this is a world of suffering and pain, and Jesus came into the world, the real world. And not long after he is born, he and his family have to run to Egypt because a wicked king wants to kill him. So let's get a clear picture of that first Christmas. A young girl in great agony and pain gives birth to a child in a very unsanitary place to face a world of pain, suffering, violence, and death. As I say, we try to sanitize the story. We want everything to be so clean, pure, pristine. As a matter of fact, some of the early pagans rejected the story of the birth of Jesus because it was so unclean and messy. There was a third century Neoplatonic philosopher named Porphyry of Tyre, who lived from 234 to 305, who wrote a book entitled Against the Christians. Augustine once said that Porphyry had once been a Christian. One of the reasons that Porphyry rejected the Christian faith was that the birth of Jesus was just too messy. It is said that Porphyry thought that gods just weren't born that way. Porphyry found it disgusting that a god would enter the womb of a woman and become her unborn child before being born and swaddled in due course, for it is a place full of blood and gall and things more unseemly still. Oddly enough, the early church fathers also thought that a normal birth would have been unseemly, so they turned it into a Hallmark card. No, the birth of Jesus was filled with blood and all those unseemly things that attend birth. That was part of what it meant to be fully man. So there's the little babe lying in a manger. Three times Luke mentions the manger in the Christmas story in Luke 2. A manger was simply a feeding trough. Luke doesn't mention any animals, but since there's a feeding trough there, we could assume that there were animals nearby. So the Son of God is lying in a feeding trough, perhaps with animals around. And again, we have a tendency to rob the mother and the child of their humanity. We sing in our little carol, Away in a Manger, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now some people have objected to that line, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And they think the writer of the carol is saying that Jesus never cried. I don't think that's what the carol is saying, but if you think that it means that the baby Jesus never cried, think again. If Jesus had been sleeping in the manger and a bull scared him by snorting loudly, Jesus would have cried like any other startled baby. Like any other baby, he would have cried when he got hungry. We know that Jesus got hungry. Scripture tells us so. So when he was a baby and he wanted to communicate to Mary and Joseph that he was hungry, he would have cried. 
we have a hymn in our hymn book that comes a little closer to the truth. Once in David's royal city, which contains the verse, For he is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness, and he shareth in our gladness. And that brings me to the whole point of this message. Why have I made such a great issue about the birth pains of Mary, the trauma, the pain, the fear, the poverty, the messiness of the birth of our Lord? If we deny these things, we come dangerously close to denying the Incarnation, and the Incarnation is everything. If God did not become man, real man, we're still lost in sin. If Jesus is not fully human, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven mean nothing. It is man who sinned, and it is a man who must suffer and die for us. It is man who died, and it is a man who must die and conquer death. It is a man who has been plunged into the depths of the grave, and it is a man in our humanity who must be raised to sit at the Father's right hand. And it is a man who sits at the Father's right hand and ever lives to make intercession for us. One of the comforts that believers gather from the Christmas story is that from the trauma of birth to his brutal death on the cross, Christ knew all the suffering of our existence. And we may turn to him and say, Lord, I know you have suffered this as well and more. Pity me and may I find comfort in one whose sufferings were far greater than my own. The writer to the Hebrews says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And again in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 we read, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, when we make the story of Jesus a Hallmark movie, we leave out the fear, the insecurity, the trauma, the poverty, the suffering, the crying, what it's like to suffer injustice, what it's like to be rejected and belittled by the surrounding culture, what it's like to have to run from a cruel dictator. We need the real Christmas story, the Christmas story of a child born into a bloody, dirty world filled with bloody, dirty people that he came to save. We need the Jesus who was born in the midst of trial and lived in the midst of trials so that he can help us in our trials. We didn't get to sing O Holy Night this year, so we avoided that train wreck. But we need to be reminded of these words in O Holy Night. The King of Kings lay in a lowly manger. In all our trials, 
born to be our friend. Just as our lives are filled with trial, his life was filled with trials even while he was in the womb of the Virgin and filled with trials even after his birth. What is the gospel? What is the good news? The good news is that he came into the world to take our pain, bear our pain, and share our pain. He is truly our friend because he can sympathize with us as a friend by being born this way, by living this way, by dying this way, he shows his great love for us. Jesus can say to us, I entered the world in this way, just as you did. I entered this world filled with danger. I entered this world to experience all the sorrows and horrors of the world for your sakes. That is love. We have a Christmas hymn in our hymn book that we rarely have ever seen, but it begins with us asking a question. Dost thou in a manger lie, who hast all created, stretching infant hands on high, Savior long awaited? If a monarch, where thy state? Where thy court on thee to wait? Royal purple, where? Here no regal pomp we see, naught but need and penury. Why thus cradled here? And then the Savior answers our question in this way. Pitying love for fallen man brought me down thus low. For a race deep lost in sin came I into woe. By this lowly birth of mine, sinner, riches shall be thine matchless gifts and free willingly this yoke i take and this sacrifice i make heaping joys for thee this is what we celebrate during the seasons of advent and christmas our lord came into a world of woe he came into a world where the church was travailing he came into the world through a jewish peasant girl he was born in such a way that he could be the savior of babies, of children, of adults, all those who have experienced the woes of this world. He loved us so much that he would come in this ordinary human way, filled with woe, to suffer all our pains and agonies. If we had been able to meet together today, we would have lit the fourth Advent candle which is sometimes referred to as the angel's candle. And in some traditions, it symbolizes peace. It recalls the angel's message to the shepherds recorded in Luke 2, verses 10 through 14. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Joy and peace in a world like this? How can this be? Because a Savior has been born. And this Savior came to us not riding on a white horse with millions of soldiers in his train. 
He came to us as an infant in pain, in weakness. And it was in this way that he was born. It was in this way that he lived. And it is in this way that he died. And it was in this way that he conquered sin and death and the great dragon who sought to destroy him. And it is by following him in this way that we will also overcome, though we are human. Let us always emphasize that our Lord Jesus Christ is fully God, but let us never take away from him his humanity, for it is a man that rules and reigns forever and ever, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.